Welcome to Love Nature, a presentation of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Welcome to season two. For our first guest this season, we have the author and journalist Richard Louvre, the man that coined the term nature deficit disorder to describe possible negative consequences as children move indoors and away from experiencing nature firsthand. If you like the show, please subscribe and share it with others. You can find the show at love-nature.org. Also, you can check out our museum, the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences at naturalsciences.org. Now, here are our hosts, the CEO and director of the museum, Dr. Eric Dorfman, and chief veterinarian and director of veterinary sciences, Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Richard, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it's a real honor. Thanks, Eric. Great. Well, so your book, Our Wild Calling, it explores the relationships between humans and nature. And something that I, I'd really love to think about, because you talk to people all, all different walks of life, people you know, people you've just met for the book. What about your own journey? Where where did that start? You obviously have a deep connection with, with nature and with animals and how you formed this and, and where it is for you personally. Well, I was actually a kid once. And, <laughs> and I spent much of my boyhood in the woods with my dog that you can see right behind me. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Well, it's a, it's a bear. I Looks, think that's me up there. Yeah. Yes, that's the, oh, a bit like Lassie, doesn't he? Yeah, and he acted like Lassie. I don't make jokes about Lassie. Maybe Timmy, <laughs> but not Lassie. And uh, but Jeff was my favorite. I don't know. Probably your listeners don't remember that. He was the first uh, kid on there. And uh, this dog did things like that. I mean, he pulled me out of a creek when I went through in the woods uh, in ice water, through the ice in, in uh, up to my knees or hips. And, uh, or at least that's what my memory tells me. Right. And uh, I think I was about eight. He would go home when I was up to no good. And my mother would know it. (laughs) (laughs) And tell on you. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was a little. But he came back. For instance, that time I went into the into the creek water and I couldn't get out because there was snow on the sides of the of the of the ravine. Wow. The more I tried, the more it turned into ice. And he came back. And my memory is him on one side end of a big branch that wasn't there before me on the other and being able to climb out. And I, and I always, and I say in the book, the memory is tricky that we, right. you know, it is yeah. possible that I blew that up in my young brain uh, to match Lassie, but he also did things that I know happened for sure. A uh, woman up the street uh, walked out of her house once with her little tiny dog in her arms to get the paper. And she bent over and, the mean dog. This was the days when there weren't any fences and dogs chase cars. They don't do that much anymore. <laughs> right, right. And, and this was the mean dog in the neighborhood. And, and this is when, you know, dogs had a social life in the neighborhood. And uh, she got attacked by this dog. And Banner, we were out in the front lawn playing something. Banner took off like a rocket and caught this dog in midair before he got to her. Wow, and she came wow. later crying, saying, thanking us for Banner. So, and he'd pull my little brother out of the middle of the street by his diapers, things like that. Now, you know, lots of dogs do that kind of thing. But 
at the time, I needed Hannah for a lot of reasons. I needed a third parent, and right. he was. And in the book, I, I'm probably going on too long about this, but in the book, I talk about having written about him when I was a columnist, a newspaper columnist, and saying that uh, I learned a set of ethics from Banner. And I got uh, made fun of (laughs) by an animal behavioralist, a rather famous animal behavioralist who who, uh, wrote and said, you're you're ridiculous, you're romanticizing, et cetera, et cetera. When I was writing the book, uh, I discovered some research about where dogs come from. Uh, we, we know they all come from gray wolves, all of them. Right. And that these German researchers had looked into this and they, you know, the, the, the popular conception is that human beings, our ancestors, 20, 30,000 years ago, trend, um, uh, domesticated wolves. As they came closer to the fire, threw them bones, all that, they, they became useful and we to them. The other idea is, and I think both of these are true, and the German researchers thought this, is that wolves domesticated us. <laughs> right. And that we followed them when they were hunting and learned about cooperation That's and amazing. teamwork. Yeah. And we ate their leftovers. It wasn't just them <laughs> eating the leftovers. The, the German researchers actually, and they also said we watched their families, very good families, wolves. And they... The German researchers actually use the word ethics in these papers. Are you aware of the book of The Question of Animal Awareness by Donald Griffin? No, it should be. It sounds like it. it basically, he's exploring whether animals are self-aware. Hmm. And it, that, you know, you think about Banner and, and think about what people's reactions to your contention that it was ethical behavior and that, in a way, sort of implies self-awareness on Banner's part. And so I'm, I'm wondering, what, what do you think? You know, you've looked and considered animals quite a bit. Do you think they're self-aware? Depends on the animal. I mean, it also depends on the dog. I, I watched a lot of dogs, and they did not kind of respond all the time like Banner did. Right. Sometimes it depends on people too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, that's right. And whether we notice it. You know, yeah. It can yeah. happen around us and we don't notice it. And Banner would actually uh, protect little dogs from big dogs. Wow. He got in a lot of fights over that <laughs> and uh, had a big scar on his nose. My mother was always out there with a hose breaking up fights, but it was always because Banner was protecting somebody or something. And he hated our cat. But every morning we'd open the door, the basement door, and go do your duty. And the cat would be right underneath Banner's legs. And Banner, it would make Banner grumpy. But <laughs> he did. He did it. He protected that Long cat. Suffering. So, you know, in the book, I, I, I imagine a set of ethics coming down 30,000 years and ending up in Banner. You know, we, we honor our ancestors, some of us, and why shouldn't we honor the ancestries of our dogs, our, our cats, and the animals we know, the wild animals we know too. So you also, in, in your book, uh, talk about your love for reptiles and amphibians when you were young. And, and so do you yeah. think this, this, with Banner and your connections with Banner, like how did that expand to nature and, and things like herps, as we call them? 
my ambition was to be a herpetologist when I grew up, which was a great consternation to my mother who had a snake phobia. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell a story about, you know, I, I, I sent off, if you can believe it, I sent off a, for a mail order indigo snake from Florida. I would have been put in jail for doing that now. But right. they sold them in the back of boy's life. This yeah. was a big snake. And I wow. loved that snake and uh, took care of it well and would wrap it around my neck and walk through my mother's bridge parties with it. And um, uh, it never would bite me ever. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time snake hunting with my snake stick out turning over rocks and you know, there were copperheads. Uh, I never caught a rattlesnake or a live copperhead, but I got among them. And uh, as a kid, <laughs> and, I, and I loved that, to, to step into this parallel world. Well, you know, in, in, the, in the book and in the other books I've written about what I call nature deficit disorder. Mm, yes. The, uh, uh, the study of awe has flourished Absolutely. recently a scientific study of what does awe do to us what does it do to our health what does it do to our cognitive skills and all of that um there are two characteristics of situations that create awe in all of us uh, hmm. among others but two of the primary ones are one is we step out of our comfort zone right and the second is there may be fear involved there may be right. risk involved yeah. and associated with fear that I think with reptiles, there's kind of an inherent wonder that comes with that, that comes from both of those areas. Uh, but, you know, it, it extends to all the wild animals we encounter, and it's not only the big predators. I, we, my wife and I, three years ago, moved up to the mountains east of San Diego, um, and it's about 4,200 feet. We get big snow here, and right. there's mountain lions in my yard. I mean, I have trail, <laughs> I have trail cams out there, and there's... 6.20 in the morning, and, you know, some joggers are missing, but you know, <laughs> I've, gotten, I've gotten pictures of mountain lions, and it's just just the idea. I haven't have yet to see them in person, but just the idea that they're there fills me this this kind of wonder. And mm. so it, it, it helps. You know, I've, I've fished on Kodiak in Alaska and, and with my son and dealt with Alaskan brown bears up close and pretty personal. And... There's nothing like not being the highest on the food chain <laughs> to get your attention and to make you focus. And, you know, you're never so alive as when you might not be alive. Yeah, for sure. Shark diving. It's another that phenomenon. And, and you know, it's interesting, too. I, I was thinking Dan and I were talking about this very this very phenomenon a little bit earlier today. Thinking about what people will do to grab a selfie or to to get a photograph, especially now with the advent of smartphones and easy digital imagery. And I wonder about this, this idea of how far people will go to get a photograph or, or what they might do, hold up a shark or hold up a swan by its neck, you know, all these things to, are we loving animals too much? That's a great question about, and it's not just selfies, it's our interchanges with animals. As you know, the, the book is filled with stories. It's, I, I don't think there's a way to really talk about this without stories. Um, it's not something that you can slice and dice totally scientifically. It's, 
you know, our ancestors told stories around campfires about animals. They would yeah. come back and they would act out the animals they encountered that day. Literally, they would dance. They would become the bear. And this is deep within it. So one of the things I hope is uh, through reading this story is that this book is that people, you know, that families will begin to tell stories at dinner time about the animal they encountered that day and what, yes. what happened. But this idea of, of how we affect, you know, our, our role in that. Uh, just um, a few months ago, uh, I, I take a lot of walks up here. I'm in the... Uh, uh, on a mountain with a lot of uh, places to walk. I don't even have to go to trail yet. So I just, and I always see deer and I always see uh, wild turkeys and uh, hawks, sometimes an eagle. Um, and one time I was walking near here and I looked down the slope and there were a group of deer down there. And I always stop and I talk to them and tell them they're beautiful or handsome. <laughs> You know, if they have antlers, I tell them. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, they were looking at me, you know, with their antenna up, their, their ears, just yeah. eye contact. It just blows me away every time it happens. And um, so then I, I moved on. I started to walk. And they moved, and they jumped over a fence next to them. A high oh, fence. wow. I thought that maybe they were coming up toward me originally, but they jumped over this fence and they ran. And all of a sudden a dog comes out from the house in that property and starts chasing the last deer who couldn't make it over the other fence at the other oh. end of the property. He, he faltered and fell back. And this dog attacked him <gasps> and oh, no. was latched onto him. Literally. It was, a, it was not a big dog, but it was, uh, it was um, clearly trying to kill him. The deer and was was holding on to it with its teeth, had its ear in its mouth, uh, ran and, and and it dragged it and then got it down, was on top of it, was trying. So I'm just frozen at the top of the hill. So I start yelling every profanity I can think of and race down the hill as fast as I can, which was not smart because it was a steep hill with a lot of trees. Yeah. And I got down there and the, the dog heard me and then pulled back and then ran off. And then the deer started, who was bleeding, started throwing itself at the fence to try to get out. And I realized part of the reason, I was panicking the deer. Now it was my turn to scare the deer. And so I ran back up the hill and about halfway up, I looked back and the deer was gone. I'd gotten over the fence, but I thought, you know, a couple things there. I could congratulate myself on scaring the dog away, or I could realize that just maybe I was the reason the deer went over the fence. I had disturbed their day, the, 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 the map of their day. You know, John Young, who teaches uh, bird language that I write about in the book, talks about ripples, that we create ripples wherever we go. If you go into a cocktail party, it, you can see your ripple happen, you know? Right. Um, one way or another, whether it's subtle or not. And we feel that too. We do the same thing with animals and they with us. Um, and to be more aware of the ripples that we cause when we walk through wilderness, that doesn't mean we shouldn't walk through wilderness, but just notice 
notice what is happening when we do that and how it's affecting us and how it's affecting other animals. It, 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 I think that's one of the doorways into what I call in the book, the, the oldest language, which precedes verbal language, mm, which yes. is all these things we share with other animals, yeah. these behaviors, sounds. It's not just verbal. It's, it's, and, and, it, and this language is, is between species. It's across species. And it's all around us if we pay attention. Mm. And it's, it takes physical form. It takes verbal form. It takes uh, visual form. And it takes other forms, too. With the, you know, we, we may have as many as 30 human senses. And to be, to be attuned to that, to notice, to pay attention, I think is the main point of this book. And when we do that, a couple things happen. I, I talk a lot about the epidemic of loneliness, yeah, yeah. human loneliness, yeah. Yeah. which now the, the people who study this say that it causes some of the same diseases or associated with some of the same diseases as obesity and smoking. And it is lethal when, mm-hmm. we, are, when we are too isolated to many people and it's growing. But all of that, I think, is rooted in an even deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. As a species, right. we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else yeah. would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent plant, uh, life on other planets when it may not be a good idea to, to find? And the irony is we're not alone. There's this conversation going on around us all the time, even in inner city neighborhoods. If we pay attention, we can hear it. And then we know we're not alone. And during the pandemic, people really woke up to that. Many people, all of a sudden, those birds outside their window actually existed and were keeping them company. And when you think about the the skyrocketing sales of bird seed and bird feeders and all those things during the pandemic, you realize that people are hungry for that contact, aren't they? Do you think that there's any relationship between the kind of awareness of observation you're talking about with nature and what the senses that people use to create art? Oh, absolutely. And it's not just the realistic art. It's abstract art, too. Mm. Um, You know, spending more time in, in nature, you see more connections. You see patterns much more than if you sit in your room. And it becomes almost intuitive that you notice patterns that sometimes are not readily detectable. They're they're subtle, they're subconscious. In play theory, there's a theory called the loose parts theory, which is that the more loose parts there are in an environment, the more creative the play. The the loose parts of a forest, of a tree, and the creator of that, whether or not you believe in the creator, creator or a creator, one way or another, it's been created with loose parts in a very, very intricate way, and there are patterns everywhere. And so I think artists are more attuned to that, whether or not they paint landscapes, for instance. They're more right. attuned to the patterns around them. And I, I've wanted to, you know, the Children of Nature Network is the nonprofit that grew out of uh, Last Child in the Woods, the book I wrote about nature deficit disorder kids. I wanted there to be a, a natural artist network. Mm. artists in our country and around the world who would who are already in many ways connecting kids to nature there's some yeah. great artists out there that do that so very specifically we're, we're talking about 
art and it's, it, you know, the influence of nature and love for nature on art. But what about the, the sounds and music? In, in your book, you talk about uh, biophony and this, this idea that you hear this collection of, you know, separate, diverse sounds. And it's really unique. It's like a fingerprint to the habitat or the environment you're in. You may remember the name that has dropped out of my head right now, which is I write about him, and then he's a he records nature sounds all over is the it world. Bernie Krause. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's Bernie Krause, who is a great guy, and uh, he he used to do the, 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 the he was a sound engineer for the Rolling Stones, and then he started recording nature sound, <laughs> and realized there's very few places you can record nature sounds without engines in the background. He goes into classrooms. And he uh, gives kids recorders that they bring their phones that can record and all that. And they create sound maps of their neighborhoods and nature sound maps. And I think that's a great way to sensitize ourselves to what's around us. So this love for nature, you know, you, you talk about your, your childhood companion, a, a dog that you lived with and a love for animals, a love for particularly reptiles. How did how did you go from that and decide to become a, a journalist, or how how did that impact your sort of career and where you are now? Well, let me, let me tell you a short story. I was this isn't about me; it's about somebody else. The um, when vitamin N, the, you know, I've written ten books, but the last four have been about our connection and human connection to nature. And when vitamin N came out, ABC asked me to go to a school in outside of Atlanta that had been inspired by Last Child in the Woods. It was a nature-based school. Nature-based preschools, for instance, and grade schools have, have skyrocketed uh, in numbers in the last 10 years. It's one of the successes recently. Um, and this school, uh, they had nature trails all around the, the school. And the, the each classroom was its own building that opened to the outside. The whole front of the classroom would open. Yeah gardens and, and all that and they would go out on these learning trails what they called them in the forest and learn about everything not just about nature and science mm. but about geography and history yeah. and all that and and the the research suggests that that many kids maybe most cognitive functioning is improved when you learn outside in the, in natural settings the tv crew that was there the 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 reporter was a lot like ted baxter who some of your listeners may remember from the Mary Tyler Moore show, very yeah. full of himself, <laughs> modulated voice, and, all that. and and he's a nice guy, I should say. And and he, uh, there were a bunch of uh, a group of girls gathered around us on that trail, and these were 10, 11 year olds, and he put the microphone in front of one of them and said, uh, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And she says, "I want to be a writer." And he said, well, a writer, what, what could you, why does learning outside on these trails, what does that have to do with becoming a writer? And she, she looked at him perplexed and said, don't you understand? Out here, everything is connected. Oh, great. <laughs> that, great? <laughs> that is great. And that's, that's what journalism is. That's what yeah. writing is. That's what art is, is seeing the connections. And uh, I loved your answer. So that's, that's my incorrect answer. Yeah. That's, that's great. Great answer. <laughs> well, it does seem if, if one were to draw a, a theme through your, the, the, the many books that you've written, at least say the last four, 
that understanding connections is kind of could describe it perhaps. And lately I've been I've been paying a lot more attention myself now that we've moved to a place where it's easier. And you can pay attention to nature even in the densest urban neighborhood. Uh, and I make the case that there is nature everywhere. But here there's a lot more of what I would consider natural environment. And um, uh, we've been lucky to to live in on this mountain during the pandemic. So I, I just leave it at that. Well, that was a great start to season one. Fantastic first interview. Looking forward to hearing him again next week, chatting to him. Dan, what did you think? I thought it was amazing. I, I thought Richard made some great points. I, I I love his concept of the oldest language. He talked about our our connections with animals and, and how there are these sort of other senses we don't always think of that, that we can make connections and talked about learning ethics from his dog banner. I, I, I really can connect to that and, and think that that's uh, a, a good, important story to tell people to help them understand and appreciate nature. And what do you think, Eric? What was your what was your take home from that uh, opportunity to, to talk to Richard? Well, it's interesting you said two things that really resonated with me. One was connections and the other was stories. And those two facets of his work are, are what resonates for me the most because he talks about all the different kinds of connections that we have with nature, either with individual animals or landscape um, or, or kind of an internal dialogue. And then it comes out by way of stories. We share them, whether it's around the campfire 30,000 years ago, or it's through documentaries or books, whatever it is, in order to participate in society, we do it through stories. And, and those two things come together. It really, I think um, that's what kind of does it for me with, with talking to him. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of season two of Love Nature. If you like the conversation with Richard Louvre, be sure to catch episode two for more of this conversation. Please subscribe to the show and share with others if you think they may enjoy what we're doing here. All of the links discussed in the show can be found in the show notes at love-nature.org. And you can check out the museum online at naturalsciences.org. Love Nature is a presentation of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences located in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina.